I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the Sirens. <laughs> so today we are talking about the movie Gone with the Wind. This is actually the first of two parts, right? We're going to divide it into the two parts of the movie. Yes, because there's too much in this movie, this four-hour movie for us to discuss in one episode. But the movie was made in 1939. It is classified as an epic historical romance film. It is not the longest film in American history, but seems close to it. It was adapted from Margaret Mitchell's 1936 novel. Um, it was produced by David O. Selznick of Selznick International Pictures. And it was directed by three men, but the person who got the screen credit was Victor Fleming. Hmm. The main roles are played by Vivian Lee, who plays Scarlett, Clark Gable, who plays Rhett Butler, Leslie Howard, who plays Ashley Wilkes, and Olivia de Havilland plays uh, Melanie. There are some supporting roles. Scarlet Sisters is played by Anne Rutherford, um, and Harry Davenport plays Dr. Mead, and we've seen him before in both Meet Me in St. Louis and also ba- Bachelor and Bobby Soxer. Apparently, Betty Davis referred to him as, without a doubt, the greatest character actor of all time. So, oh, wow. <laughs> And then Hattie McDaniel played the role of Mammy, uh, and she was became the first African-American to win an Academy Award um, for that role. In July 1936, just a month after the book was published, uh, David Seltznick bought the rights to the book to make it into a film for $50,000. Um, the music was composed by Max Steiner, who later went on to compose the music for Now Voyager, Casablanca, and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, among many other movies. Um, the budget for the movie was $3.85 million, Dollars yeah. and since then has made more than 10 times that at the box office. And it, like we said, it is 220 minutes long and, inc- and includes an overture, an intermission, and also exit music. So the film follows the life of Scarlett O'Hara from the time she is 16 until she's about 28 um, through the whole course of the Civil War and much of Reconstruction as what's called, quote, the Old South crumbled and rose again. Um, at the be- <laughs> I guess, <laughs> despite the Yankees at the and beginning the scalawags. of the- and the scalawags, yeah, and the carpetbaggers. So at the beginning of the film, she has like we already know that she has fallen in love with a neighboring gentleman named Ashley Wilkes, and the f- movie opens just before the declaration of war, which. Uh, like, right before Ashley goes off to war, he marries his cousin, Melanie. Throughout the rest of the film, Melanie and Scarlett are very close, though Scarlett continues to nurse her love for Ashley through famine, the burning of Atlanta, and Sherman's March to the Sea, and a number of marriages, including uh. one to Captain Rhett, Rhett Butler, who, who sort of decides that he's in love with her and follows her over the 12 years this film lasts. I mean, the film lasts four hours. It just seems like it lasts 12 years. And, you know, and and so, you know, she's marrying all these men, including Rhett Butler, who, with whom she has a, an interesting marriage, but that doesn't happen until the second act of the movie. Yeah, it's gonna be hard to differentiate, but I do, I will try to refrain from talking about their marriage, because... (laughs) I'll probably just be screaming the whole time. We have so, other things to scream about in the first <laughs> Yeah, first there's part. T- take your pick of offensive, bigoted themes. <laughs> <laughs> 
We have all um, of them. Yeah, we pretty much do have all of them. Um, so I looked into trivia for this movie, and since this is one of the most popular movies of all time, a lot exists, so I definitely can't cover all of it. But, um, <laughs> here, Here is a sampling. You mentioned the Academy Award, so this was the first color film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Oh. And it's also the longest running movie to win that category, which makes sense because it's not often that there's a four-hour movie anymore. Thank you God. Meant, yeah, I know. <laughs> I couldn't even sit through Titanic at the theaters like when I was a kid. Hattie McDaniel won as you mentioned, but um, she was actually unable to attend the premiere in Atlanta and none of the other black actors were able to attend it either because it was segregated. And Clark Gable was so outraged that he was going to boycott the premiere unless Hattie McDaniel could go, but she convinced him to go anyway. But it didn't actually solve the problem and, and none of those actors got to go. If this movie was like adjusted for inflation, it would be the top grossing movie of all time, beating even Star Wars A New Hope. So, um, would it beat Black Panther though? Because isn't that, yeah. oh no, is that the highest grossing action hero movie? Action movie, I think. I don't know okay. though. Black Panther did do really well, but I wouldn't be surprised because Gone with the Wind just keeps getting re released to theaters. I mean, it's been more controversial oh, sure. lately that it yeah. does, but you know, they keep reissuing it. So Vivian Lee, who played Scarlett O'Hara, worked for 125 days and she was paid $25,000. And Clark Gable worked for 71 days and received over 120000 So that's, Great. if you're thinking equal about pay. equal pay, equal work. <laughs> yeah, she got almost like a fifth of what he got and worked almost double. And he also got top billing for the movie. Barbara O'Neill played Ellen O'Hara, Scarlett's mother. Oh, and yeah. she was, you could see from the makeup that she looked, it looked like they were trying really hard to make her look older. She was only 28 when she played that <laughs> role. Yeah. <laughs> and Vivian Lee was 25, so they were like pretty much the same age. That's hilarious. I thought this was really interesting. The first scene that they shot of the whole movie was the burning of the Atlanta Depot. Oh. They actually did burn a bunch of old sets that needed to be cleared out of the studio lot. <laughs> so there actually was just like a giant fire. And if anything had gone wrong, they just would have lost all their money and not been able to make the movie. So it was a huge risk. And the fire cost more than $25,000 to make and was so crazy that all the local residents were like calling because they thought the studio was burning down. <laughs> so, I thought that was interesting because you know, by today's standards, I was just assuming it was all kind of like bad special effects because the fire didn't even look that authentic like yeah. in the movie. And then when I found out they actually did just make a giant fire, I was really surprised. Yeah. Um, well, and I read somewhere that David Seltzenich's, David O. Seltzenich actually operated the con like all of the controls for the explosives. Um, to oh. burn down everything, <laughs> which seems like an odd thing for a producer to do, but yeah. I guess if you're bankrolling it, you get to do whatever you want. Yeah, I guess he was like, it's my money, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to um, burn it down. <laughs> Another thing that came up a bunch of times in the trivia was kind of that, like, all the main characters in this movie, the actors hated 
playing them like a lot of the actors even though these this is the role that they're most known for really hated their parts in this movie clark gable hated it he said it was a woman's picture um yeah that's what i think of too (laughs) the actor who played ashley didn't disliked his costumes and thought he was too old for the role the actor who played Charles, Scarlett's first husband, um, was actually like a super macho guy and hated playing such a weak person. <laughs> so it's it's another one of those cases where people didn't even seem that into the movie and yet they were all like so perfectly cast and now that's what they're famous for. Yeah. Vivian Lee said that she hated kissing Clark Gable because he had terrible breath. Um, <laughs> oh which God. was... <laughs> supposed to be caused by his false teeth because he lost all his teeth because he like smoked like a maniac but then i did find something and i don't know if this is true or not but that one of the set workers saw that clark gable would eat garlic before his kissing (gasps) scenes with vivian just to make her mad oh my god and i had heard that they didn't get along very well and that you know, they didn't enjoy working together. So that kind of supports that. Yeah. Um, so you talked about, like, the change in directors. And uh-huh. George, George Cooker was the first one. And he had, like, prepared for this movie for two years and done a bunch of work. And he had worked closely with a lot of the lead actors. And then Selznick fired him. And it said that it was partially because... Cooker was gay, and oh. Selznick thought he would be unable to direct the love scenes. He replaced him with Victor Fleming, who was like a total macho, like guy's guy, um, and that caused tension on set because um, Vivian Lee and Olivia De Havilland both really liked working with Cooker, and they actually sort of kept working with him on the side with oh, right. like, some acting coaching and stuff. But it did seem like. Victor Fleming didn't really respect the movie or, like, care about it as art because he thought it was, like, the same as Clark Gable. Oh, it's just, like, a chick flick. Yeah. Um, Vivian Lee, I know. There's a, I think a couple scenes that Cooker filmed actually made it into the movie, but it wasn't much. And Vivian Lee hated him, and just to troll him, she brought the novel of Gone with the Wind to set every day, like, to be, like, basically, like, this is more intellectual than you're making it out to be, and also you're unintelligent. Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought that was great. (laughs) So Vivian Lee actually had fourth billing for this movie. So it was Clark Gable, then Leslie Howard, then Olivia de Havilland, and then Vivian Lee. Sure. And And she got made half of what Clark Gable made. She wasn't as well known. And then, like, once the movie was out, they changed the billing because she was, like, a big hit. Oh. Apparently, at the premiere in Atlanta, there were a number of actual Confederate Civil War veterans there in attendance. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I mean, they were... they must have been old, right? Yeah, very elderly. Did you hear how they did this big acting contest to cast the role of Scarlett O'Hara? It it was like thousands and thousands of entrants, right? Yeah, and so 1,400 actresses interviewed, and 400 were asked to do readings. (laughs) And I read that... I know, and it's still not clear if if they actually were seriously considering all those people because they also had like a write-in contest for fans of the book. Like who do you think should be cast as Scarlet? 
and it's rumored that they had already cast Vivian Lee like a long time ago, and it was all just to drum up publicity, but we really don't know. Oh my god. Um, but one of the final actresses they were considering was supposedly Katherine Hepburn, which yeah. I think, I cannot imagine her in this role. I, yeah, I mean, I feel like she she would have made it an entirely different character. And well, first of all, how could she have dropped her like <laughs> weird affected accent and done a southern thing? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but she was actually good friends with Vivian Lee and was maid of honor at her wedding. So I oh. guess it all turned out fine. <laughs> oh, the one scene that I thought was really interesting was that big field hospital scene. Oh, yeah. Because I was watching it with Mike, and he was like, well, how did they do this? Because, you know, they had no CGI then. And how did they do it with Did they just have all those extras? Because they showed, like, a huge, like, it looked like thousands of people. And apparently they used, like, half of them were dummies. (laughs) And the other (laughs) half were actual people, which I totally could not tell. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah, because yeah. I mean, that is such a like affecting scene when they like the camera pans as Scarlet is like coming upon all you know this like sea of wounded soldiers, and it just like the sea grows and grows and grows and grows. So many people. I know it. I felt like I would have been the same as her, like just running away from that. Yeah. So obviously, there's a lot of racial issues with this movie and the way that slavery is remembered. The NAACP actually threatened to boycott the movie and Selznick called a meeting with black journalists and told them that he removed a lot of the inflammatory footage. Because apparently there was a a different cut where the Ku Klux Klan was even more sympathetically portrayed and they basically show like a justified lynching. And they took that part out. So, I mean... I guess not that's that, positive. <laughs> I know. I uh, Clearly not enough. But I guess they were like, oh, we, we threw them a bone. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I wanted to include... You know how there was that rumor about using the word damn or not using the word damn? Oh, yeah. So this was not the first film to use damn in the dialogue. And it was in a couple of silent movies in the thirties before that. Um, But it was still an issue in this maybe because it was a talkie. It took Selznick a lot of effort to get it through the censors. Yeah. I guess it helps that nobody takes their clothes off and that's the only racy thing. Yeah. That's all they care about. I had also heard that the censors were just upset about the, um, like the discussion of sex, even though they kind of don't directly talk about it, but oh yeah, when she says she doesn't want any more children, yeah, <laughs> and it's like mm-hmm. you know what that means, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it all made it in, so I guess that's fine. And and that's all I'm gonna touch on with the trivia because it, like it could go on forever. Yeah. Well, speaking of like the, all of the racial tensions surrounding this movie one of the things that i read and i don't honestly know if it's true but apparently the NAACP gave Hattie McDaniel a hard time for for you know playing this role of mammy and you know and told her that she was doing african americans a disservice and she evidently said in response that she would rather make a hundred dollars playing a maid than one dollar being one yeah 
I read something similar. I think that is true. And, that, and a lot of people accused her of being an Uncle Tom. But, I mean, I think actors in that time must have been in a tough spot. I mean, yeah. Because if they wanted to work, like that, those were the roles that were available. And she made advances, like she won the Academy Award, but it was seen as like she didn't do it in a positive way. So I don't know. It made me feel bad for her. Yeah. she. There was no way she was going to win. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's either like don't do the part and stay in obscurity or do it and get recognition for your talent, but your community accuses you of betraying them. Yeah. Boo. Yeah. So I actually bioed her oh yeah so tell me more about her uh so she was born in wichita kansas on june 10th in 1893 and she was her parents 13th child so quite a large family yeah her father was actually a civil war veteran who had been injured in battle her mother was a domestic worker and in 1901 the family moved to denver colorado And she attended the 24th Street Elementary School, where she was one of only two black students in her class. Um, From the time she was little, had a great uh, singing voice, and she sang in church and at school and at home. And she started singing and dancing professionally when she was in high school. By 1909, she had dropped out of school to perform in minstrel and vaudeville shows. In the mid-1920s, she was one of the first African-American women to perform on the radio. So it sounded like she was really better known earlier in her life for her singing. Uh Um, But then she transitioned that into an acting career. In 1934, she landed her on-screen break in the film Judge Priest singing a duet with Will Rogers, which, like, I kind of want to see that now. Oh, my gosh. Um, And the following year, she was awarded the role of Mom Beck, starring opposite Shirley Temple and Lionel Barrymore in The Little Colonel, which I've seen and is, you know, is a sweet movie, but it has some issues. And that role got her attention from bigger Hollywood directors and then she started getting more offers and she got to play Queenie in the 1936 adaptation of Showboat. Oh. Um, Yeah. So a lot of her earlier roles were musical type ones in the movies. And then in 1939, she was in Gone with the Wind, which was seen by like everyone Mm -hmm. um, playing Mammy, the house servant of Scarlett O'Hara. And she was both the first African-American to be nominated for an Oscar and the first to win. But since she played Mom Beck in The Little Colonel, she was attacked. Not So basically, she was attacked not just for her role in Gone with the Wind, but for other movies that she was in as perpetuating a negative stereotype of her race. Um, and she often played servants and slaves who were content to retain their role. But she pushed back against that criticism and said she she, she had a right to play whatever role she wanted. So she died of cancer in Los Angeles on October 26, in 1952. And she was posthumously awarded two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And she was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame in 1975. And she was honored with a U.S. postage stamp in 2006. And I actually oh, remember yeah. that. I was going to say, I remember that. So that that's her. Trailblazer. It was interesting reading about her not long after we had done the episode with Sidney Poitier because I was yeah. thinking about how, like, later in his career, he was criticized for not yeah. being revolutionary enough in his film roles and 
kind of like pushing for change in a soft way instead of embracing more like the Black Panther movement and such. And I was like, uh, you're, it's tough being a trailblazer if you're from a minority group. Yeah. There's just the challenge of choosing how you're going to live your life. I, it's just not, not easy. Yeah. So, and who did you bio for this one? So I bioed uh, Leslie Howard, who played um, Ashley Wilkes, the lifelong love of Scarlett O'Hara. For no so, reason at all. For for no reason at all. <laughs> so Leslie Howard Stainer was born in London. Um, his father was um, a Hungarian Jewish immigrant, and his mother was was English, but had German Jewish ancestors. He went to he went to Oweta College at Dulwich College around the time of the First World War. His family anglicized its name to a different spelling so that it would you know distance them a little bit from the, their German background. So um, instead of being spelled Steiner, it was then Stainer. But Howard's name remained. Uh, Steiner in like all of his official documents, including his military record. So it was more a matter of just like publicly changing the spelling. He worked as a bank clerk after school and then enlisted in the army at the, like when the war broke out. Um, But in 1917, he was diagnosed with as being shell-shocked and was, um, you know, discharged and advised to take up acting as therapy, as you do. Um, (laughs) He had made his first film in 1914, so, you know, before he was in, you know, discharged in the war, I guess, or I don't really know what the timeline of that was. He sort of became known as playing the perfect Englishman, this, like, slim, tall, sensitive, intellectual man that, you know, he is very similar to the role that he played in Gone with the Wind, and it was a part that women would throw themselves at him about. One, His friend, um, David Niven, said that he was not really like that. He actually had the kind of distraught air that would make people want to mother him, but he was about as naive as General Motors. He had a busy little brain that was always going. Um, in 1920, he finally changed his name permanently and legally to so that his last name was Howard, taking on his stage name. Leslie Howard. His first sound movie was in 1930, the movie Outward Bound, which was an adaptation of the stage play that he had starred in as well. He continued to play this, you know, classic Englishman role, and it's sort of that Englishman role is summed up in the role that he played in The Scarlet Pimpernel in 1934, which I read somewhere was, you know, that he was a foppish member of society. Um, so so very 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 perfect so he's principally known of course for his role in gone with the wind but he's also known for appearing in the petrified forest in 1936 and pygmalion in 1938 which earned him an academy award for best actor he he was the one who insisted that humphrey bogart repeat his role that he had played on stage, the role of Duke Manti in The Petrified Forest. Later, like, many years in the future, um, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall named their daughter after Leslie Howard. So when I was actually, like, Googling Leslie Howard to 
to find, you know, information about him. What came up first was Leslie Howard Bogart. So oh. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of sad and kind of a shock. Um, yeah, the person who's named after him is more famous than he was. <laughs> yeah, or at least gets more hits in Google. <laughs> she's She, by the way, is a nurse, so <laughs> she's not famous. Or she's famous because of her parents. He actually preferred to play, you know, be on the stage, and as he got more famous, he got pickier about what roles he would he would do, and usually only per- performed in about two films a year. So he's most famous for Gone with the Wind. The reason I know him is because he appeared in the movie Intermezzo, which was Ingrid Bergman's first American film in 1938. Oh. Well, of course um, you know him from that, then. <laughs> that's my, like, <laughs> touchstone. So Gone with the Wind was actually his last American film. When when the war broke out, he returned to Great Britain to help with the, the war effort. Um, he then, from then on, devoted all of his energy to um, help Britain win the war. He directed films, wrote articles, spoke on the radio, made a couple of documentaries, one or uh, several with Noel Coward for BBC. And he was rumored to have been involved with British or Allied intelligence, which those rumors were only fanned into flames when he was killed on in an airliner that was shot down by the German Luftwaffe over yeah um over the bay of biscay in 1943 it was a just a passenger he was just a passenger on on this plane so he so, was a and war then, casualty but he was a war casualty yeah so in 1944 after his death the british film industry voted him the second most popular star at the box office, which leads me to wonder, what do you have to do to be the first most popular star if he died <laughs> yeah. during the war? So sort of a, a brave but untimely end for Leslie Howard. Hmm. I don't think I've seen him in anything except for this, and I... I hate that character of Ashley Wilkes, so I've always <laughs> no. kind of been like, I don't care for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, do you want to get into the movie? Yes. Let us get... Well, I guess I should give a little background about my relationship with this movie. Oh, yeah. Yes. Please tell me all about this. <laughs> so I've seen this movie a bunch of times, which I assume many people have, but most of them were when I was growing up, and this was my... My mom's favorite movie. And I only, when I was researching it, I just found out that the Gone with the Wind superfans are called Windies. Have you heard about this? No. (laughs) So I guess she was a Windy. And, you know, she came up in a time when, like, even as, like, an older person, nobody really owned movies. But this was, like, the one movie that she owned. And when I would go over her house, she would be playing it and... When they re-released it in theaters, we went to see it together. I was asking my dad about it recently because I was like, so, you know, like, Mama was really into this movie and I just rewatched it and it was, like, super problematic in many, many ways. <laughs> and what what's the deal with that? And he, my dad said that he thinks it was the age she was when the movie came out. She was a really little girl. And so, like, it was probably one of her formative going to the movies experiences. And it is, like, mm-hmm. a very impressive movie. So yeah, she just loved it. But because, like, I grew up watching it with her, I, I looked at it 
very uncritically as a child and I just thought it was romantic and like this must be the history and uh, right. <laughs> I, yeah so I hadn't rewatched it since I was like a teenager and I remember as a teenager being like oh yeah like clearly this has issues but watching it now was insane like it was it was uh, it was yeah. hard to find very much redeeming about it like beyond I mean I think I wrote down at one point like the score the costumes and the production value hold up and like Melanie as a character yeah. maybe but <laughs> what kind I mean and there's you could argue good acting in this movie but like yeah. pretty much nothing else holds up beyond this. Yeah, the actual content is terrible <laughs> yeah yeah so anyway what about you have had you seen this many times um I had seen it once you know, I think probably when I was in high school, I watched it. You know, I remember, like, going down into the basement, you know, in, in my childhood home where there was, you know, a TV and my, like, my dad and I, like, sitting on the couch. And, like, he's the one who showed me all of the, you know, the old movies that I knew growing up and introduced me to all of them. And at some point he, we decided it was time to watch Gone with the Wind. And I just remember, like, sitting in the basement for four hours <laughs> watching the movie you know, on the TV down there and, like, emerging from the basement, like, having been gone for a long time. <laughs> you know, I think I, I remember not, I've, I've never read the book, and so when I saw the movie, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't really know what it, was, what it was about. My dad was really good about not, like, giving me spoilers. Like, he wouldn't tell me before I watched Casablanca how it ended. Um, so he was, so he's a good, you know, person to introduce me to movies. So I think I remember thinking, like, okay, I've seen this movie. I don't need to see it again. But watching it for the podcast, I think what I realized was that there's so much of the movie that I did not remember at all. Like, I had no memory of most of the movie. So yeah. I mean, even having seen it a bunch when I was little, I remembered the first part way better than the second part. Like, the second yeah. part, and it might be because it's, like, pretty... I mean, they're both upsetting, but, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, less happens in terms of, like, historic things happening in the second part than in the first yeah. part, too. So, I did read the book. I think that's what prompted me to rewatch it in high school, and... This is usually, like, the one example I would come up with where I thought that the movie was better than the book. Mm -hmm. But now, I don't even know if I would get... I, I do think that, in a way, it is better than the book. And I can say that about almost no other books. <laughs> I don't even know if I'd want to give that as an example anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you're right that, you know, the music was really effective and the like the use of technicolor was really effective and the acting was for the most part really you know they did a lot you know given that they had three different directors and how many different screen writers and mm -hmm. you know and didn't like their characters didn't like each other <laughs> yeah were, it seemed like i mean g given all that it was you know like not not unpleasant to watch, but, like, the content of it was unpleasant to watch. Yeah, it's true. Well, and they tightened up the story a little bit, I thought, in the movie compared to the book. Like... Really? <laughs> yeah, I know, considering it's four hours. But, like, Scarlet 
it, one thing that was a big change is that she had a kid with each of the earlier two oh. husbands in the book. And so then they were characters. And I read in the when I was looking at the trivia that originally her first husband, Charles's son, was supposed to be in the movie and they wrote him out. It would so. be so complicated. <laughs> I know. So, like, basically she... In the book, by the time she had Bonnie, that was her third kid by a different husband. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, by bit. the end of this, she's like, she's so young and she has been through... So, well, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves because that's part two, but... Yeah. Even in, in the opening, she's what, like 16? She's 16 when the movie begins. Which, I don't know, I have only vague thankfully memories of being 16 but you know she's the movie starts where she's 16 and there's this big barbecue at the neighbor's house and she's like charming all of the these men and boys to like you know have barbecue with her dance with her and you're a kid (laughs) you're 16 yeah what do you mean you want to get married i mean which i know is anachronistic <laughs> it it really did seem like she was kind of like a child in the beginning in the way she was interacting with her sisters like they were pulling each other's hair yeah yeah which i guess is that is kind of typical of like 16 year old behavior that like in one moment you're like flirting with boys and you think you want to get married and think it's time for you to get married and then in another moment you're you know teasing your sisters yeah <laughs> great I thought it was hilarious how all the men were fighting over, like, who got to go get her food for her. Yeah. That has never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> Life goals, hell. Yeah. Um, at one point, I love that Hattie McDaniel's character says, if you're old enough to go to parties, you're old enough to act like ladies. Which I was like, yes, that is a good, like... <laughs> <laughs> that's a good like life lesson or life motto or whatever if you're old enough to do this fun thing you're old enough to not be a jerk <laughs> yeah not that she ever got there no <laughs> i um, thought it was striking like especially you could see in that party scene just how like horribly restrictive the clothing was and yeah. like her getting in that tiny little corset and at one point she like is running away Mm-hmm. And she's in that giant, like, hoop skirt, and I just yeah. thought, like, how are you running in that? Well, she has an 18 and a half inch waist, so... <laughs> oh my gosh. What did you think of the the dynamics between the two households, Twelve Oaks and, um, and Tara? I feel, the one, the only theme that I thought was, like, somewhat compelling in this was the the way that she was devoted to the land... And, like, her father kind of taught her about that. Yeah. And in the book, they made it a bit more explicit than in the movie. But the fact that her father was an Irish immigrant, actually, they tried to act in the book like, oh, yeah, we're discriminated, too, because he's Irish, you know. Yeah. White people have it bad, too. Oh, my gosh. People still use that argument. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that, in a way, her father gave her a lot of qualities that made her a survivor yeah in this movie like the love of the land and the tenacity and the adaptability that a lot of the other people didn't have because they had just been like really soft for generations at tara that like the opening scene of the movie is slaves working in the field yeah which is kind of chilling yeah like and i 
it almost seemed like if they if it had been a different film, it could have been like a subversive opening scene. But it was just kind of like, look how I- idyllic people are working in the field. Yeah. Although so I did that- count I, in the first six minutes of this movie before that scene are titles. Six minutes of opening credits. <laughs> yeah. Partly why this movie is four hours long. <laughs> but I guess it's uh, good that they, like, set the set the tone of, like, this is, we're going to talk about the Old South, South, and this is what the Old South is based on. You know, it's based on unpaid labor. Yeah, I mean, they it was pretty upfront about it. But they, they never really addressed it as, like, slavery as an institution. It was just kind of like, oh, it's there. And then the only slaves who really have speaking parts are slaves who are loyal to the family and even after the war is over, stay around. That yeah. wasn't really great. And then I thought it was super disturbing in the scene at Twelve Oaks when all the women go to take a nap and they just have like a mm-hmm. small black girl fanning them. With a peacock feather? Yeah. I was like, oh, God, could this be any more horrible? But they're all just like, yes, this is what we do. We all we all take a nap in the middle of the afternoon, and our slave girls fan us. Oh, yeah. I mean, it probably that... was really like that. <laughs> it was probably the good moments. I mean, the estates were so ridiculously huge and over yeah. the top that yeah. there was no way that they could have been maintained without something like that so basically they were like they could never have lasted yeah what about what did you think about you know they're at 12 oaks and they're you know having this barbecue and you know they're talking about the coming war and then they get the message that the war has broken out and the men are all you know excited and so glad that they're gonna go and whip the yankees you know in just a couple weeks and be back well i just read a book about world war one and it seems like with all of these major wars, it's the same. Like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, we'll be done by Christmas. And then, like, you know, five years later, like, everyone's yeah. dead. Yeah. So it seems so pretty great. short-sighted. Yeah. And Red points out that, like, they have no means of production. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, he's, like, surprisingly anti-war, as is Ashley, I guess. That, you know, they're both, yeah, this is not a good idea. <laughs> well that whole party scene it seemed like the whole purpose of it in terms of the movie was to set up like this is the the genteel old Mm -hmm. south this is what we're fighting for like look at how fabulous this is but there were only like probably 20 families who actually got to experience that right it wasn't like everybody in the south (laughs) lived at a place like tara no like that was if that's what you're fighting for, it's like a really small percentage of people in the South who are actually living that life. And it also kind of seemed like, you know, disturbingly idle. Yeah. Nobody (laughs) had anything to do ever except like flirt with each other and like go riding basically. (laughs) Yeah. They don't need, they're rich. They don't need to do any work. Yeah. I wrote about the, mammy character and it comes up in the second part too that like she basically runs the whole household Mm -hmm. and she does the parenting of scarlet and i thought it was interesting that when you know scarlet goes back to tara and she wants her mother i was kind of like your mother wasn't really as 
big of an influence in like Mammy is a bigger role in this yeah. movie in terms of a parent figure than yeah. either of Scarlett's real parents. Although because she has Mammy to like be the stern one and be the the one who's actually like the disciplinarian and making sure that she's doing the right thing, that means that you know her parents are just these lovely nice people who never who have never said a a mean word to her because they don't have to because they have a slave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so she has to be the disciplinarian too. Yeah. I think in the book it was a little bit more explicit that like Ellen was a really good person mm-hmm. and Scarlet like wanted in some ways wanted to be good like her. Yeah. So she kind of looked up to her in that way, but you know, she just wasn't like that wasn't her personality. Yeah, there um, are some it, glimmers of, like, references to, like, oh, her mother was going and taking care of, you know, the slatterly woman who's sick and helping let the less fortunate, but you know, there are only, like, passing references to that. Yeah, and those references, it showed how the whole society, basically, unless you were in those 20 families, like, they wanted nothing to do with you. Everyone else was white trash. Yeah. And, like, we don't associate with those people, so... (laughs) Yeah. It's very limiting, like, very limited society there. So the war breaks out, and Scarlet, like, marries her first husband in order to, like, prove to Ashley that she doesn't actually love him. Because, you know, he sees... She sees him kissing Melanie right before the war, and so, um, or before he goes off to war. So he marries, she marries this guy who just happens to be there and is in, like, in love with her. And then, you know, the men go off and her first husband is killed. And she says to her mother, I'm too young to be a widow. Which she is, she's 16. But then, like, fast forward to, she goes to Atlanta. Her mom sends her to Atlanta to Melanie's house, or Melanie's aunt's house, right? Or her aunt's house. Um, Aunt Petty Pat. Yeah, Aunt Petty Pat. You know, and she's there and, you know, being chaperoned by this aunt and goes to this ball where there's an auction for the women, for a dance with the women, which has some problems. And, like, the the genteel women are, like, totally appalled that they're auctioning off the women like slaves. What shocked me is that, so they're auctioning the women off either for the night or for the dance. I don't know which one. Like, bidding $20 or $25, which, like, even today, I'm like, that seems like, you know, kind of a lot of money to, for, like, to pay for a dance with whoever you want. But it also, I mean, it's, like, still creepy. It still seems like a lot of money, and it seems like a lot of money. It would be a lot of money back then. And then Rhett, who's met Scarlett at the barbecue at Twelve Oaks, um, comes and bids $150 for Scarlett, which, I mean, that just seems like a fortune. Yeah. I, I guess he was just trying to make a point. <laughs> yes, that he, that he, A, had $150, and he really, really wanted to dance with Scarlett. <laughs> In a way... I I liked that scene when I was growing up because she was barely even married to Charles. And then for her to be in mourning all that time, I don't know. It kind of did seem harsh. Yeah. That, that she, although she completely used him, so I'm not, like, defending her. But, you know, if she couldn't even dance with anybody, I felt like Rhett was just trying to get her to break the rules. Because yeah. he liked seeing her act that way. 
and like express that side of her personality. Yeah. It was about this time that I wrote in my notes that Rhett Butler equals Rick from Casablanca. Because <laughs> I've seen Casablanca many times. And just that he's like, he's mad at the idea of like the waste of living in the past. So he thinks that the other Southerners are just like wasting their time by thinking that they can make the old South rise again. And he's, you know, like willing to work with whoever will, you know, pay him the money. And has sort of a surprising underdog, pro-underdog, or he, like, he wants to do the right thing, even though he's a total asshole. Yeah, he is. I mean, watching it this time, I was just like, I can't believe that I used to think <laughs> Rhett was, like, a romantic figure. I really found nothing redeeming about him. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> He is a little bit more appealing in part one because he hasn't really done anything awful yet, but he does humiliate Scarlet a lot or, like, puts her in bad positions. I didn't really care for that. Yeah, he puts her in places where then she responds and then he can say, like, oh, I love this fiery side of you. It's like, well, she only has this fiery side because you keep being a jerk to her. Yeah. I mean, she's also kind of a jerk, but... <laughs> so when I was growing up, I found the Melanie character super annoying because I thought she was like insipid and a total pushover. Watching it this time, I thought she seemed like one of the only decent people in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, she she doesn't follow like a very specific moral code that doesn't really like check out, <laughs> but she is true to it her version of being a good christian and like accepting people and stuff but she still is like you know buying into a lot of these like terrible institutions of the old south yeah she's she's kind in some ways but you know short-sighted in others um with her being so sickly and everything i wrote that it's because her whole family has been inbred for generations (laughs) (laughs) Because the Wilkes always marry their cousins. That's right, I forgot about that. (laughs) They needed a little diversity in their gene pool. They did. I really (laughs) found... Rhett was on a... I think Rhett is attractive. I mean, Clark Gable is attractive, physically. But I didn't... Like, I thought his character was a jerk. But I have never understood why Scarlett would have liked Ashley. And I remember reading and, like... That some people, viewers, thought that he was, like, a great crush. Like, people would crush on him for years. Like, the Ashley character. And I was like, I do not understand this. Not only is he, like, leading on one person while married to another person, but he's kind of weak. Like, he's a weak person. Well, and he doesn't seem... This is, like, also going to the second part. But he's, like... Not only is he not weak, but he's not smart. He has no redeeming qualities. I mean, he seems like the classic, to the manor born, I only know how to follow this certain social more, you know, how I'm supposed to live as a gentleman. And even if I want to do something different, I can't because this is the way that I was taught to be. He didn't. He didn't even have much personality. I didn't get it. I mean, it seemed like the only reason Scarlett liked him was because, like, he was the one guy that she couldn't get. Yeah, yeah, the only one who wasn't fawning over her, and so that was the one that she wanted. Yeah, so, and then, of course, even though he married someone else, she was like, I'll just keep him close by, just in case. (laughs) Just in case. 
Yeah, so then the war happens, and Scarlet is a nurse in Atlanta, and there are all, there's that scene that you mentioned, the field hospital, with this, like, sort of sweeping scene of, you know, hundreds of dying men, thousands of dying men. Scarlet is in Atlanta, but she's sort of determined to get back to Tara, right? Mm-hmm. And she sort of, she runs out of... The hospital after she's supposed to help with this amputation, which like <laughs> everything oh, I've yeah. ever learned about Civil War medicine, I agree with her. <laughs> yeah, that scene haunted me when I was a kid. Like yeah. I specifically remember the line where the guy is yelling "Don't cut!" like really yeah. disturbing me and me being scared, like going to bed at night because <laughs> "Don't cut." Don't cut. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's terrifying. So then she she runs out into the street and she where like people are fleeing Atlanta because you know the Yankees are coming, throngs of people, and she happens to run into her family slaves, and then she happens to run into Rhett, which like there's a lot of coincidence in this movie. <laughs> That's true. And so she's gonna like go home with Rhett, um, her aunt who's going to Tara, or getting out of town at least, but then. She has Dr. Mead, this, like, old guy, who is the same old guy for the, like, 12 years that this movie covers. (laughs) Why isn't he dead by the end of this movie? (laughs) I know. Why isn't he dead? (laughs) That's a key question I have. So then she, he, like, convinces her not to leave, that she has to stay and help Melanie have her baby and care for the baby. And, of course, she, like... Ashley came back at some point on leave and made Scarlett promise to take care of Melanie. So now she's like, she's promised the man that she thinks she loves, you know, to take care of his wife. And then, of course, Melanie goes into labor right as the Yankees are marching into Atlanta, which like... Yeah, of course she does. Well, and one of the depictions that really bothered me, like even more than all the other stuff that's upsetting in this movie, was uh, that of Prissy and how... Oh, yeah. She, she's just such a stereotype of, like, you know, this imbecile girl who lies and, like, dawdles and is totally unhelpful. <laughs> I felt really bad for that character. And also, like, why did they have to have that? And there's a lot of instances where the slaves are the butts of the jokes in the yeah. movie that really bothered me. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't great. <laughs> No. So after Melanie has the baby and Scarlett helps her despite having, like, in this movie, like, she had never given birth at this point. Right. Um, That's right. Oh, yeah. In the book, she would have given birth before. (laughs) Yeah, so it would make a little bit more sense that she was helping her, but... Also, like, why didn't Aunt Pity Pat stay and help? Was what I was wondering. Um, <laughs> Who knows? But so they all, like, load in a wagon, and Rhett drives them to Tara, and, like, Melanie's, like, half dead in the back. Right. He doesn't drive them all the way to Tara. He drives them just a little bit to Tara. <laughs> and then just, he drops like, them off. Through, yeah, just to the, through the pouring... No, not it hasn't it doesn't pour start pouring rain yet. He drives them a little bit, leaves them, and is like, I'm joining the army. And then it starts pouring rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's that horrible scene with the horse oh, dying yeah. with the foaming oh, mouth. Oh my god. Yes. Which like I'm sure we agree that was some like some of the worst hardship in this movie. <laughs> the treatment of well, the horse. 
It did make me think, like, there weren't really good laws about stuff then, so I bet they probably really did mistreat that horse. Yeah. Oh, the thing, so this, you know, we're in the era of Me Too. Yeah. Oh my and god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say what you're the... gonna say. <laughs> Most of the, like, physical intimacy in this movie is non-consensual between Scarlet and Rhett. And, like, the first major scene of this is when he's dropping her off to, like, you know, continue on to Tara. And he just grabs her and, like, forces kisses on her. And, like, that happens several times in this movie. And every time it's, it is clearly against her will. Yeah. (laughs) And... But it's played like it's romantic. Like, the the cues around it are that the audience is supposed to see it as romantic. Right. Yes, it's supposed to be this, like, wonderful thing. Beautiful, wonderful. He's so passionate about her that he has to just kiss her. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I just, I mean, I know he wanted to go off and, like, join the army or whatever, but to leave someone alone with, like, a sick person who's just given birth and a baby... I think like, you've just like gone the rest of the way and been like, all right, I'm gonna double back now and like, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna leave you now. Yeah, like, what's yeah. the point of bringing them like half the way there and then, and then Scarlet says she's helpless and Rhett's like, yeah, heaven help the Yankees if they ever capture you. Which like, is that a compliment or is that a dig? Yeah, yeah. A lot of the time it seems like he's just making fun of her, but he also claims like he's so in love with her spirit yeah uh yeah not not a fan of the romance so she gets back to the house and most of the other plantations in the area the great houses have been burned down but tara is still standing and she comes in to find out like her mother has just died and is i wrote down like suddenly it's become a gothic horror movie i know goes into the house i know her mother's body is laid out and her father's gone insane (laughs) i know it's like what is happening in this movie and basically she becomes the head of the family so so there's one one generous reading you can do of this movie and we can talk more about it like with part two as well but that reading is that sort of a feminist scarlet is she's a leader she does what she needs to do to survive she adapts and she like takes care of the people through any means that she has yeah none of this i mean that i don't think that reading works but i could see people making that argument of like look she's a strong woman and no she's not like a good person but she's pragmatic yeah and maybe she grows over the course of you know, having to deal with the hardship. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree with the turn she takes of becoming so... Not becoming. I mean, she's basically selfish the whole time. Yeah. But you could see that when someone goes through something like that, where, like, they lose everything, like, they lose their family, they lose their livelihood, and literally starving, that they would be like, all right, well, I never want to feel this way again, and I will use whatever means necessary to ensure that that happens, which is pretty much what she does. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did you like the with God is my witness moment? So, so speaking of my parents, I don't know how many times my dad has seen this movie, but my mother refuses and has refused throughout my life 
to watch what she refers to as black and white movies. And, of course, like, Gone with Wind is in color, but she's talking about any movie made before, like, 1980, let's say. And so I was talking to my... So I watched this movie, the whole thing, this weekend, and then I was talking to my parents on Sunday, and (laughs) my mom says... Like, as I'm talking to her, she's like, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. And, like, which I think is just proof of how, like, pervasive, like, some of the lines in this movie are. That, like, my mother, who I'm sure has never seen this movie, (laughs) she knew that that was a dramatic line. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we have, as the, you know, a clip in our podcast, the Tomorrow is Another Day. Oh, yeah. Um, I also have used the line, like, how she's always saying, I'll think about that tomorrow. Yeah. Like, I've I've said that, like, oh, I'll think about that tomorrow at Tara. Yes. Um, So. Fiddle dee dee. So, (laughs) overall, like, what did, did the first part of the movie work for you at all or was it just totally like I hate every second of this I was curious because I could I I couldn't remember what happened in the second part I was curious to see what was going to happen okay we've had two hours of movie this is a good stopping point what what's <laughs> gonna happen in the second half <laughs> obviously there is much more to come but what's gonna happen yeah it i thought it was interesting in a way that it's the civil war it's a perspective on the civil war but not from they don't actually show any battles you know like it's a a home front perspective on it not like a soldier's perspective which sort of makes i mean it's a a definitely a, a distinct image of the experience of the war, I guess. You know, it's it's gruesome in an entirely different way. Yeah, but it, it I don't, I just, you could see why people have such an issue. Like now, like after the Confederate monuments and everything, like the depiction in the movie of the Old South is so skewed and such revisionist history. And this movie had like such a cultural impact that, yeah. People thought that this was what actually real. happened. Yeah. yeah, that like this was the truth of what the Civil War was like and what was lost. And Margaret Mitchell, who wrote the book, like wasn't even from that time period. Yeah. Well, and she like did some did a lot of research and there was a historian credited in the film credits in this this movie, but they were also like they were of their own time. And, you know, they were of the 1930s where, you know, they had a different context that was also predisposed to think that the South before, during, and after the Civil War were, you know, good, you know, and worth saving. Yeah, I mean, basically, this the whole movie as a whole is just about, like, a society that is no longer functional and dies. Yeah, great. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> well, we'll pick up with part two, in yeah. which I think we will focus more on gender. <laughs> yes. And then we'll talk more about the costumes and all of the usual stuff, too. Oh, yeah. And the social justice and or, or lack thereof. Right. And whether or not this film passes the factual test. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.